0: Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast number 133, and we're hurtling through May. It was Mother's Day in many parts of the world on Sunday, and because my wife is North American, she figured she should get two, seeing as the one in the UK was in March. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and before I continue, I should say that she did get, kind of a gift, some time to herself to rest, which was definitely well-deserved. I took the dog and my son out to do a walk along a fast-running river nearby at a loch, also known as a lake, which included my son tripping and sliding down a small hill face-first in the pouring rain. He thought it was hysterical, fortunately. I'm pretty sure he gets his accident-prone nature from me, as I do have a catalogue of injuries, some of which I must admit are hilarious, like the time in an exam hall which actually was the gym, when I took a minute to think and leaned against the sliding door that holds all of the gym equipment, only it wasn't locked, and it came off the railing and I fell through it. Or the time in front of an audience of several thousand playing a concert in an arena when a backlit Budweiser sign fell off the wall and shattered all over me and my drums. That's probably enough, even though there are many more. Too many. Probably enough for a weekly podcast that no one would listen to. It was also election week, so our mailman is now walking with a spring in his step again and arriving at least half an hour earlier than he did when he was carrying propaganda for all 11 political parties to every household in the neighbourhood. Anyway, it's over now, at least for a while. I do have to say I'm glad that we live in a true democracy where voting is meaningful, the whole process leading up to the elections is quite different to what I experienced in North America, where on every corner, every lawn, every building, there seems to be a sign for some candidate or another. Here, it's much more low-key. I saw maybe three signs in the entire county, although one of them was quite funny. It was a sign that said to vote for Rick Astley, because he'd never give you up, never let you down, never run around or hurt you. What made driving by that sign a couple of weeks ago a little spooky, though, was as we saw it, the song came on the radio. And if you think that's weird, about ten minutes earlier, we drove through the tiny village of Parton, just as Jolene by Dolly Parton came on. And I'm not joking. Before we get to the news, I did get one confusing news press release this week. I mean, we always get odd ones, completely unrelated to what we write about, which is also part of the entertainment for doing the job. But one this week basically said, if you'd like to do an interview about this, the person is available on this date at these times. So I replied within 15 minutes and said, OK, we'll do an interview for the podcast and was told, sorry, we're not doing any interviews about this because we're too busy. OK, then. And so to the news. We had the Maxim Foods Global Dairy Commodity update for May. Lactali Ingredients is now offering organic whole milk powder. And the World Cheese Awards are set to go ahead in Spain in November. Let's hope. In the US, Stage has acquired Haystack Mountain Cheese. Fonterra started consultation on new capital structure options. And SIG launched tethered caps for cartons. SICK has introduced new level measurement technology. Christian Hansen launched its Vega Culture Kit for fermented plant bases, as you will hear about shortly. And in India, the ice cream industry group is looking for help because of the pandemic. Arla issued some green bonds this week, and they were immediately snapped up. And a UAE University study shows the beneficial effects of camel milk on diabetes. Glanbia published its first quarter results. A new Omnia mineral improves probiotic stability. GEA debuted its OptiSlicer 6000 for cheese products. And Milk Specialties Global has started lactoferrin production. A new Kerry report highlights the top seven global trends impacting taste. Synergy Flavors has acquired Innova Flavors. And you can read all of these, although not necessarily all at once, and plenty more at DairyReporter.com. So let's get to this week's interviews. As you may have read, Christian Hansen has launched Vega, a culture kit designed for optimal results across the scope of plant bases. So to tell us more is Dr. Ross Crittenden, Christian Hansen's Senior Director for Commercial Development. Could you tell me what the driving force was behind the introduction of Vega?
1: Yeah, thanks for that. So it's really comes from the tremendous growth and consumer interest in plant bases that we've seen out there in the marketplace. So Christian Hansen, of course, has a long history, over 140 years in servicing the dairy industry. And just seeing now that uh, consumers are looking for the options in the plant-based world for uh, great tasting products, and of course cultures play an important role in providing great fermented flavor for these type of products so we saw an opportunity as a close adjacency to what our expertise already is to be able to supply great quality cultures for this segment of the market
0: and what are the challenges when it comes to producing plant-based yogurt alternatives because obviously there are so many different kinds of plant-based,
1: Yeah, and exactly, that is the challenge. So it's the sheer number of different choices of plant-based materials that are available for our customers to be able to choose and put together. And in addition to that, it's the variability within each one of those different uh, raw materials that are out there. So you can get the same whether it be an oat base or a soy base and and get it from different suppliers and you'll end up with a different result in your product because it'll have different composition and different functionality. So in addition to that, another layer of complexity has really been that now our customers are starting to blend the different bases together. So they might take an oat base and they want to increase The amount of protein in there. So they'll blend it with a pea protein or they'll get a soy base and blend coconut in there to to bring the colour and the the creaminess of the coconut in. So it's just the, the limitless number of different combinations and permutations. And unlike in the dairy world where milk is pretty much milk everywhere in the world, now we face a situation when we go into a customer that their base is fairly much unique. And so developing cultures that are going to work across this wide range of different bases and give really robust uh, performance has been one of the challenges always in, in making fermented products. So I think uh, in addition to just the variety, it's really the lack of functionality compared to dairy proteins. So we're used to those proteins producing a very nice gel structure to make a yogurt, for example, or to make a cheese. You get a certain type of functionality. And uh, plant proteins, of course, are, are very different and plant fats are different. And so you get different types of functionality. So it's how to create that functionality without having to add a whole lot of stabilizers or flavor maskers, because of course the flavor that can come in with these plant bases can also be problematic for consumers. So there's really a lot of challenges to taste, to texture, to providing clean label products brought about because of the variety of different plant bases that are out there.
0: Is that why this is a kit? Because there's really no one size fits all?
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons that we have our culture kit because we wanted to give robust performance across the bases and at the same time give flexibility for our customers to be able to choose combinations that uh, work for their particular base. But the culture kit that we put together isn't just about really the functional performance of the cultures and getting cultures that work across those different bases. In fact, we took a fairly philosophical approach to developing these cultures, we took a step back and saw that many of the cultures out there in the market were actually more or less translated from dairy cultures and put across to the plant-based world. We took a different approach. We went back into our extensive culture collection. I mean, Christian Hansen, over the more than 100 years of its history, has built the biggest collection of food microorganisms on the planet. So we're able to go back into that collection and really select strains that work well across the wide range of different plant bases and then combine them into cultures that will work robustly no matter what the plant base is that it's facing. So we try to make it as simple as we can for our manufacturers that the culture will work robustly. So we do that work for them so that uh, they don't have to think about do I choose a culture for coconut or soy or whatever. It should work well across the different bases. And then we also designed the kit based on really understanding what are the major consumer drivers in this category. So we see that, uh, obviously, taste and texture is a major driver and a major barrier in some cases for the plant-based category. But we also see from extensive consumer surveys, our own and others, that health remains the major driver. And that's closely followed by sustainability. So actually, cultures can play a role in all of those taste and texture in health and in sustainability. So we put a kit together with cultures that could really fit towards those different aspects of the consumer drivers so that our customers can select a culture that will produce a certain type of taste, a certain type of texture. They can choose to enhance the health positioning with the world's best probiotics. And then we, of course, have the bioprotection cultures which can enhance sustainability of the products by uh, reducing food waste through their fermentative action, actually inhibiting the ability of yeast and moulds to grow well.
0: Obviously, what you've just been talking about shows that there's a great complexity when it comes to the creation of plant-based yoghurt alternatives. Is your kit something that companies will come to you already knowing what they want, or is it very much the case that, you have to help them out through this kit and how easy is it for them to use
1: it's fairly simple it depends a little bit on the level of knowledge of our customers so i think most of them have a, a reasonable sense of saying okay do i want a culture that is going to produce a lot of thickness and and produce that sort of creamy mouthfeel do i need a culture that's very mild or do i need a culture that's giving more fermented flavor so they already understand from their marketing department that, okay, health is going to be important here. Or should we include these probiotics to enhance the health positioning of the product? But having said that, of course, there's a lot of know-how that our application group has put together, and they really are able to help our customers. And we look to really partner and engage with our customers very closely to be able to give them our experience from developing these cultures for a wide range of bases and really help them through their whole development chain, basically, to be a partner hand in hand with them to uh, get the best culture for them.
0: Given that there are so many different bases and there are so many potential requirements that your customers would have, how did you put all of that together in one package? It must have taken quite some time.
1: Yeah, it did. And uh, we spend a lot of time back in our discovery unit. So we have very extensive know-how of uh, understanding what are the sugars, for example, that our cultures can use. How do they work together, synergistically together when you put them together in a culture? And that's really important. So you can take some strains that you know have a beautiful marriage in a dairy product and you put them together in a different environment and suddenly they don't like each other and they behave very differently. So we have different divisions within our R&D who really understand the strains themselves the cultures how they work together on those different bases and then there was just a lot of sheer work in testing a range of different bases understanding how the cultures behaved and really selecting and, and expertly curating if you like cultures that work as broadly as possible across those different bases
0: there are already plenty of plant-based yogurt alternatives on the market what benefits are there for companies using your products?
1: Yeah I think uh, the first one is this robustness. The second one and a really key innovation in the Vega culture kit that we have is the ability of cultures to produce extra creamy mouthfeel. So we see that one of the drawbacks of some plant-based products is just the very long label that they have. So they are positioned as very natural and healthy of course and then they don't have a very clean or short label. So having cultures that can obviate the need to use too many maskers uh, because they can work and prove the taste of the product and particularly this texture that they bring. So they bring this increased creaminess, this increased body to the product so you need less stabilisation and it really improves the overall feeling of the product and the consumer experience.
0: Not only do you have the newly launched Vega, you also recently launched Fresh Q. What was the next generation of Fresh Q intended to address?
1: The bioprotection team at uh, Christian Hansen, so Fresh Q is the brand name for this uh, bioprotection cultures. They have an extensive background of R&D understanding of the mechanisms of how fermentation can actually help through the action of the fermentation, prevent yeast and mould growth in the products. And like in plant bases, they've developed one specifically for plant bases that works tremendously well across a range of different bases. That's part of the Vega Culture Kit. But of course, the history comes from the use of these cultures in dairy. And really, it's a natural solution where through the action of the bacteria themselves and they understand a lot about the mechanism now of how it works. It's actually a competition mechanism where it uh, sequesters manganese from the medium and prevents the yeast and moulds access to that nutrient. So, These cultures have in the past been very applicable across a wide range of different applications and markets. In some applications and in some parts of the world where either manufacturing control or the distribution or supply chain control of temperature, or you need a very mild product, for example, there have been issues where you get post-acidification, so the pH of the product uh, drops too low, there's too much acidification. And so this new innovation, the new fresh FreshQ culture, while maintaining its performance against yeast and moulds, is now able to really deliver very mild outcomes for a wide range of fermented products particularly in places where maybe process control is not so good with holding times or holding temperatures, where the temperature control in the supply chain is not as good in terms of its cold chain, where there might be breaks. So the FreshQ culture, is the new one now, is particularly good in those situations. So it'll open up new applications and the use of FreshQ to a whole new region of the world.
0: At the beginning, you mentioned about the rise in plant-based. So how important is plant-based to Christian Hansen and how does Vega
1: fit in with that? What Christian Hansen, like I think any company who's been involved in the the food manufacturing sector, has seen is this tremendous uh, consumer interest in plant-based products. For us at Christian Hansen, it's now an important part of our strategy going forward. And we actually call these new areas that we're investing in lighthouses. And the newest one we have is this plant-based lighthouse. So we're investing very heavily in the development of both uh, scientific knowledge and uh, new product development. And of course, in our application, know how to be able to service this part of the market. And, uh, you know, this is just the beginning for us.
0: And of course, just because you're investing in plant-based doesn't mean that you're ignoring dairy.
1: No, certainly not. No, it's an additional investment, not a change in direction. So Christian Hansen, of course, you know, we've been in the dairy industry for 140 plus years. So uh, that will certainly continue. And this is just a a nearby adjacency that really, you know, we can leverage all of our know-how that we've learned across the dairy industry and put it to work here in the plant-based world.
0: Food manufacturers should prepare for increased scrutiny over nutritive claims, according to global food safety certification company Lloyd's Register, following growing commitments from retailers to move towards selling healthier products. In a wide-ranging discussion about healthy food trends and much more, we chatted with Kimberly Carey Coffin, Global Technical Director at Lloyd's Register.
2: Lloyd's Register is a global professional services company and risk and safety are kind of sit at the core of everything that we do in that whole frame of professional services. We've got a really broad capability across a multiple group of sectors. Food is one of those key sectors. Um, And we work with a number of customers that span kind of 75 countries. So well and truly quite a large global provider of professional services around risk and safety. And the key area that I work in is our business assurance and inspection services area and and specifically the area that I work with is the food sector and working with major food manufacturers, retailers, other large food businesses and looking at supply chain assurance. And We classify ourselves well and truly as supply chain assurance specialists in that regard. Work really closely with our customers around areas of food safety traceability integrity and sustainability risk and actually look at how we can kind of focus on the right suite of whether it be audit and assessment training technology solutions coupled with um, the large pool of subject matter expertise that we have across the food sector to actually help those customers uh, improve risk visibility as well as reducing risk and mitigating risk
0: the report that came out that we're talking about. is the one on processed foods, obesity. Originally, it was a developed world issue, but it seems to have expanded a lot. How do general food industry trends
2: link into that? You know, when we think about obesity, and as you rightly said, you know, developed countries clearly have an issue. And I think when I think about it, there's the food aspect, but there's also the quantity of food aspect. I think you know, that availability and variety of food. And I think in many respects, consumers have forgotten about what the necessary quantity of food is for us actually to sustain ourselves. Food is very much not only cultural, but it's also an emotional type of thing. It's what we do with people. It's how we share. And I think, well, and truly, that is driven, this rise, this growing rise in obesity. And as those Western, if you will, the developed countries or those Western trends around eating and food kind of start to spread into more developing countries and and you start to see some of those Western brands more predominant, you know, we are now starting to see obesity not just being in those developed countries but also rising in developing countries where that rising middle class is actually starting to grow.
0: Do you think that consumers are looking for healthier products simply because of these issues, or are there other health issues that people are looking
2: to address through healthier food? Yeah, look, I don't know that obesity per se is driving the consumer well and truly to actually seek out healthier options. I think clearly there is a segment of the population that actually do focus on those healthier options because of weight control and actually trying to actually reduce their, their weight. But I think it's more broad in that there has been for a number of years a growing awareness of the importance of health and well-being overall. The fact that, you know, most people do understand that maintaining a healthy weight can help them by way of, I'm not a dietitian, I'm not a nutritionist, but most people by and large do understand the relationship between what we put in our mouth and our overall health. There's a growing awareness, and probably in the last 12 to 18 months, even more so. And, and we'll talk about we can talk about that a bit more. But it's about they understand that if I'm overweight, that gives me other risk factors around diabetes, around heart conditions, around cholesterol. So I think it's more around this this overriding health and well being and the growth and the awareness that consumers are starting, or people generally are, are actually do have an appreciation for. I think when we think about healthier foods or healthier products, I'm not sure that the general consumer is actually really attuned to what is a healthier choice. I think they have perceptions of what are healthier choice is. I think they, you know, look at labels, they may look at labels to actually view that. But when you think about those healthier choices, there's a big role that media plays in that case. And interestingly, we undertook some studies with regards to kind of where people go with regards to understanding about food or about the right foods to eat or the right things to consume. And they really looked at families and friends with with regards to trusting that information about food and food products, specifically the safety of food, which plays into the quality of food and the health characteristics of food products. So you need to look at kind of does the consumer actually really understand and appreciate it? Are they going to the right places for the information? Food, like fashion, is very much built on trend.
0: And clearly the pandemic has affected consumer opinions on food and ingredients. How have you seen changes there?
2: I think one of the things that's really interesting, and I just did a little bit of kind of a background check to kind of look at a couple of stats. One in five meals in the UK were consumed out of home in 2018. Now, if you consider that in the context of the last 12 to 14 months, the fact that we haven't had that as an option, there's been a real change in focus for consumers with regards to what they eat and actually how they eat. And it splits into kind of two different groups when I look at kind of the impact of the pandemic. You've got those in the population that have been able to continue to kind of work And they've got income and they have that ability to continue to get the food that they need. And we've seen a shift really in in those people and looking at the impact around food is that, you know, there's been a real clear evidence that actually demonstrates, you know, the shift to local and to buying local and to supporting local business, as well as the shift to home cooking, because it's been essential. We've had to actually start to cook at home and every meal has been at home. We can order food in, but the reality is, is a lot more home cooking, and looking at how do we get that variety from a home cooking perspective, and and what's important by way of home cooking. That increases our confidence, I think, too. I think a lot of people have got away from doing a lot of home cooking. You know, as an overall kind of group, there's been a higher degree of confidence in what's actually achievable when we, we have, and we get access to, you know, the foods and the ingredients that we need. The other side of that story is where employment has been an issue, where there have been challenges around income. I think one of the things that we've seen really greatly is there's been a a huge percentage of the population that have been just focused on getting access to food to actually put food on the table. So the ability to choose, the ability to actually select the food products that they consume has been significantly uh, impacted by the pandemic and their ability to actually purchase things. I think you're also seeing that overall, that consumer base has really started to focus on, again, from an economy's perspective, is looking at supermarket brands and the importance of the supermarket brands play with regards to staple products. You know, so rather than necessarily paying a bit more for a particular branded product, you know, sugar tin tomatoes, those basic staple items that we use is we're making kind of economic choices with regards to the types of foods that we're purchasing. When we look at specifically though around kind of healthier foods and consumer opinions, yes, there is some focus on the need to be a bit healthier, to make sure that we're actually eating right because that's important from an overall health and wellness perspective. But interestingly, comfort foods and treats have registered really high. So things like biscuits, consumption up by 7% in the last 12 months, chocolate up by 6%, processed meats like bacon, 15 to 20%. So it's almost like because consumers have been kind of confined, it's like I deserve to actually treat myself, which is pretty interesting.
0: So in terms of what Kinds of products consumers are looking for today. I guess what you you were just saying was that the, the economics of it is as much a factor as the health
2: part of it. Very much so, very very much so. I mean, and you know, and it's around that freedom of disposable income. It's almost taking us back, Jim, to some of that. fundamental purpose of food. So where we very much, as we spoke about earlier, very much got into it was a means of entertainment, a means of enjoyment. What this has brought us back to is food is a fundamental part of sustaining us and being able to weigh what's important by way of the foods that we consume. You know, having said that, there are some products that we are seeing particular consumer trends and things that are important and a subtle shift, if you will, in the types of products that consumers are focusing on. I mean, everybody talks about the rise and rise of plant-based products, and clearly we're seeing that. We did a little bit of a food trends kind of look in the magic ball and what are the big food trends for 2021 going to be back in January. And there are three key things that kind of resonated when we look at kind of what we're seeing from a consumer demand perspective plant-based feature on that. And I think it's more a a case of not so much they'll continue to grow, but I think what we'll start to see in 2021 is that those plant-based products will start to normalize. So they're not going to be kind of alternatives. They're not going to be new. They're really kind of making that shift this year into another part of, you know, another type of protein source. And they'll normalize over the period. I think a focus on fresh has also been a big one that we've seen from a pandemic perspective and people looking at to get that fresh and to get that cook cooking home feel is starting to look at and we're seeing it everywhere around meal solutions. So where I can get a meal box, what it does is it's coupling that home cooking piece that we've come accustomed to and, and the need to do over the last 12 months with that fresh and convenient. So as where before I might have gone out to eat or I might have bought a ready meal. Um, I'm looking to continue to use those home cooking skills, but I want it to be convenient. And then the third and big piece is, and this links directly into, I think, the health and well-being piece and, and industry is very much focused on it, is the importance of nutritive claims. So I think that rise, you're starting to see one demand, but you're also going to see that The food industry as a whole is going to start to push to really playing those nutritive claims around their products and what those key nutrition benefits are to consumers, because consumers are acutely aware of, more so now than ever, on the importance of getting their nutrition right.
0: What do you think the challenges are that companies face when they're looking at new product
2: development to meet those changing trends? Well and truly, it's about a real clear focus on what they want to do, not overextending, you know, how can they look to incorporate plant-based components or or a plant-based variety? How can they promote the use of their products through that consumer desire, that consumer need to actually be a bit more home-based and more flexible with regards to what they're cooking at home and how can they build variety into that. Looking strictly at NPD, it's also looking at and understanding what some of those critical risk factors are with regards to supply. When we look at overall supply chains and we look at, you know, the sourcing of raw materials and new raw materials to be used as part of an NPD product, there are a lot of challenges across that food supply network or that raw material supply network. You know, we've seen disruption we've also seen depletion because we haven't been able to actually get the harvest to actually get the workforces you know to actually get some of those raw materials so the industry needs to be really focused and and what we talk a lot about is making sure that you have a real clear line of sight with regards to the sourcing of those raw materials understand the vulnerabilities and actually spend some time actually looking at The risks related to where you're actually procuring those materials and can they have a negative impact on the overall product that you're producing? And is there any risk to consumer and how you can actually manage and mitigate those and control those? We do spend a lot of time looking at kind of those trends and looking at what's going on with foods, again, to provide that information back into our customers but I guess the other piece is, is also to help our customers looking at kind of and supporting them on their journeys as they start to make pivots and changes and to understand what they need to be focusing on.
0: Fairtrade USA and Chobani have launched a certification program for U.S. dairy farms and cooperatives to provide financial premiums to dairy farmers and workers. And also to protect and empower them while raising sustainability standards. To tell us all about it is Molly Ronaldo, Fair Trade USA Partnerships Manager. I guess if we could start by, if you could give me a little bit of background on Fair Trade USA's programs and what they do globally, and and also how, what you do with other commodities, because I guess the dairy is quite new.
3: So Fair Trade USA started out as the American arm of the fair trade movement the international program started decades and decades ago in europe But as an organization we've been around about 20 years and ultimately we've expanded and innovated outside of the typical commodities that people know us for so coffee and cocoa and sugar and we've expanded we've created a factory standard that allows us to certify apparel and home goods Um, we've created a seafood standard we were also the first of the various fair trade orgs that moved into the global north. But ultimately, fair trade was created to support farmers and workers, ensure safe and fair working practices, and ensure fair wages for farmers and workers, and really just give a voice to people who are typically the voiceless and create a sustainable approach to ending poverty. But currently, fair trade works across 250 commodities. We're in about 46 or 47 countries right now, and get to interact with about a million farmers, workers, and fishers throughout all of our programs. And so, dairy was the next innovation that we took on. Many times, we approach this as where's a group of individuals that could benefit from the impact of fair trade that someone's not currently representing them, whether that's an independent smallholder in the Philippines or a factory worker in India, or a dairy farmer in Idaho or New York. So that's really where it came from.
0: I guess a lot of people, when they think for fair trade, they think things like coffee, and they think of countries like Colombia and parts of Africa, some parts of Asia. Why was this extended to dairy in the US?
3: Yeah, so about a handful of years ago, we actually decided that we wanted to expand our produce program into the global north. And that was our entry point, because there's this misconception that because the Global North is more developed, we should have these spectacular labor laws, which in some countries we really do have them. And in comparison to the Global South, they are much better in terms of labor laws. However, when you look at something like farming in the United States, the vast majority of the people working on those farms are migrant workforce that perhaps aren't documented or could be documented, but don't for fear of one repercussion or another. And then therefore, they don't even get to benefit from the labor rights that we have within the states. So that was why we moved into Global North. We piloted produce a little bit and saw really incredible change that was there. And dairy, like I said, we were looking at where do we in- innovate next? Um, and someone brought up dairy. And So we started looking at it a little bit. And then we started talking with Chobani about coconuts much earlier. And they brought up, hey, have you ever thought about dairy? So that really kind of teed up the conversation onto it. And we committed to them. We said, we'll do an exploration phase. We just want to look at, can we apply our model as it is and make impact? Can we use a standard? Because we've got standards that we've used around the world. They're based on ILO conventions. They're well-tested, well-revised. Can we use one of those? Or would we be starting from scratch? And is there a market for it? Are brands and retailers going to want to jump on and our consumers are consumers actually looking for this? And we drove in and we ended up finding a lot of yes, buts. And ultimately, the good outweighed the challenge of it. And so we said, okay, great, we'll pilot it. And then that's what we announced in July of 2019.
0: 2019 to now, what's happened in in between?
3: A whole lot of change, given the pandemic and given not the pandemic. We ultimately said, okay, Chobani, you want to take this on? We know we're going to have to take our agricultural production standard, which was created for crop production in the Global South, now we're gonna apply it to an animal byproduct in the North. Okay, there's gonna be a lot of changes that have to happen there. But first and foremost, we need to find people who wanna do it. Fair trade is entirely voluntary. We are market-based, meaning a brand or a retailer needs to be committed to buy on fair trade terms before we certify anybody. But, once a brand like Chobani comes in and says, we want our supply chain certified, then we really just ask for introductions and then we approach a cooperative and via a cooperative then approach farms to explain the program and to make sure that they have the ability to voluntarily say yes or no, because it's a big commitment for them. And so we identified what farms we wanted to pilot with for the product line that Chobani wanted to start launching. And we did kind of two really big projects in tandem. First was certifying those farms. So going through and doing a pre-assessment, finding where they needed to come into compliance still with our standard as it was written, with really kind of minor changes that we knew immediately had to be made for dairy. And while we were working with them to get certified, we, in tandem, were doing a full public consultation on our standard. So understanding it was not going to apply well to dairy, dairy is very unique in the challenges that they face. We went through a typical public consultation for us. Anytime we make a change to any standard, As a nonprofit certification, we have to engage the public and get feedback from stakeholders. So this meant for dairy, we were working with farms, cooperatives, manufacturers, brands, retailers, academics, other labor organizations, anyone who wanted to give the input, we were happy to talk to. And over the past, you know, year and a half at this point, there was a lot of engaging, understanding what needed to be changed, and then working with our standards team to use our model and our vision and our mission to make changes, and then going back to those groups and saying, here's our proposed changes, does this answer your need, and doing that over and over again. And so at this point, we are going through final quality controls and translations, and that new standard is a dairy version of our APS that will be released in the coming weeks. And then moving forward with that certification, over the next year, we'll be looking specifically at environmental and how we apply the social lens to the environmental needs that are faced by the dairy
0: industry. Is there any danger in partnering or working with one dairy company when it has competitors and there's a whole industry of other companies involved?
3: That is such a good question. And I'm very glad you asked it. It's not necessarily a danger because we're working with Chobani. And I don't mean to say that as to build up Chobani as this gold standard necessarily of dairy, which I think they're doing a great job in the industry. But the reason I say that is because even just in the last week since we launched this and the last two years we've been working on this program, Chobani's commitment has been to making sure that this becomes the standard across the industry um, and compelling other brands to take on with us. They were the first ones to jump and wanted to invest in this program and help us see it to fruition because... This answered a need within a pro- internal program and commitment to their industry stakeholders that they had made as an organization. But throughout all of this, they've always been committed to, hey, who else can we bring into the fold? Whether that is literally introducing me to other people they know at Dairy Program so that I can explain it to them, or in conversations we've been having with the media in the last week, they're very quick to say, yes, this is great. We're very proud of Chobani for taking these steps and we continue to want to take steps with fair trade, but really we want other dairy companies to embrace it. I think the general understanding is as the tide rises, so do all ships. And the only way to really improve the social aspect of the dairy industry is for everyone to jump on board. So there was a danger. We were apprehensive of entering with one specific organization, but I think ultimately it ended up being if we had to make it with just one organization we really chose a good one to partner with.
0: And so how will the assessment and assessment of products and companies work going forward?
3: So if a brand comes to us, we initially work to understand what their goals are and then we work back with their supply chain. So understanding are they buying direct, are they buying through a cooperative structure and then we the hardest part of the entire process starts relationship building. So getting a cooperative to trust us and become a part of the program. Then we identify through that cooperative, which farms probably are a good fit to receive certification. And then we start the whole certification process, work to get those farms ready to go. And that includes in very simplified structure, we work with farms and do a pre-assessment. So we understand how far are they currently from compliance and set them up on a plan to close all of those gaps. They then undergo an audit against the standard. And our standard is progressive over six years. So each year, there's a little bit more. The bar gets raised a little bit higher to allow those farms to grow into full compliance with our standard. So we work with them for their year zero audit. They go through, they close any noncompliances that that audit might be found and receive their permission to trade. In tandem with all that work, we're also working with the brand to switch over um, packaging to make sure they're in line with our seal guidelines to build their story and understand how Fairtrade will fit into their brand story. And then ultimately we launch. And that whole process, we say typically takes about six to nine months from early conversations to a product being on shelf with the seal. It's open to anyone, any type of supply chain, any dairy byproduct. So anything that's sourcing raw milk, that's what we certify. It can go into whatever you want.
0: And what are the benefits to farmers? Do they get a premium for having fair trade milk?
3: Yeah. As I mentioned before, that community development premium, it's at work in every single fair trade certified ingredient. Dairy has a little bit of a uniqueness to it. So given the size of the dairy industry, given the technological advancements, our premium is actually broken into two parts. So when Chobani buys a product, they pay 45 cents per hundred weight. That's set by Fairtrade after a pretty intensive market evaluation to understand what's an impactful number, but what's something the market can bear. So 45 cents for every hundredweight that is sold on Fairtrade terms goes back to the producer groups and it's split into two pieces. One third of it, or 15 cents, goes into the Compliance Support Fund, which is unique to Dairy. And that fund is intended for farmers to invest in different projects or changes that need to be made on farm to come into further compliance with our standards. The other two-thirds of it, or 30 cents, goes into a bank account that is owned and operated by the workers who created that milk, and those workers then organize and get to democratically decide how they want to invest it within their community and where they see the need best for it. So that's the biggest, most tangible benefit of fair trade to producer groups. But I think something that gets overlooked quite often is also just the benefits that the standards bring. More so than you know, making the protections of a safe working environment, um, notifying hazards, first aid kits, sexual harassment training, but really things that seem very simple and that we take advantage of and we take it for granted when we already have it, things like just being trained on what your rights are or making sure that your contract is in a language you understand understanding what it means to be recruited and what is ethical recruitment you know these are all benefits that many workers around the world don't have currently and don't know that they should deserve and they should be able to fight for and so that i think is one of the biggest benefits of fair trade is just having everything in a language you can understand and understanding what are your rights and as a human, what is the value you bring to the farm and what should the value be that the farm is giving back to you?
0: And so when a company has the accreditation and they can have the logo on their products, does that mean that it's all done? Or does it mean that you still have to recertify them after a certain period of time to ensure that they're still compliant?
3: So as I mentioned, the producer group, so the, at the farm and co-op level, they undergo an annual audit every single year against standard for those first six years the challenge of compliance is is a little bit more intensive each year. And that will continue for as long as they are a certified group, they will have an annual audit that they have to adhere to. For everyone within the rest of the supply chain, so from that producer group all the way up to the brand level, they have to adhere to our trade standard. And our trade standard is just to ensure fair trade practices along the supply chain, also make sure that we have a tracking mechanism. So when we look at In practice, what is really the focus of that is their their quarterly reporting. So everyone along that supply chain that takes physical or financial ownership of a fair trade certified ingredient is required to report their purchases of that ingredient and the sales to the next link in the supply chain quarterly to us. We have an incredible cert team who spends hours and hours verifying all those numbers. What we're really looking for is, was the amount of, in this case, raw milk that was produced from a fair trade farm does that match the amount of milk in the product that's being sold to consumers under our seal? And vice versa, the amount that's being sold to consumers, is that equaling the amount of premium that ends up back in the bank accounts of farmers and workers? So we're verifying all of that. There are random desk audits that have along with that. There's other in-person audits will come into play should they be required. And so those are the periodic checks there. And then in terms of benefits to the brand itself for being a part of fair trade, there is that consumer-recognized seal, So there is the ability for that. And more and more we're seeing statistics of people believing it's the requirement of the onus of a brand to take care of social challenges within their supply chain. So you have that ability for now consumers can recognize that you are and making that change. Statistics that say people will change to a mission-based brand when they have a third-party verification. And then a lot of my work, once a brand is certified and using that ingredient, is helping a brand to tell their fair trade story, to kind of serve as an expert, so to speak, for their marketing teams. How do you share impact? How do you talk about the stories that your producers have invested in because of the premium that you've done? Allowing those producer groups to keep all of the ownership of that project, because that is a thousand percent theirs. But also as a brand, being able to say, you know, we were committed, we increased our cost of production to make sure we could support that. And we want to talk about that too. The biggest thing as Fairtrade that we're really trying to do is commend all of these partners for the work that they've done and try to share out those stories from farmers to cooperatives, to the brand level itself, what we've done and just already the impact we've seen in two short years of work, I think has been really incredible. It's been a huge investment of time and resources. To bring this to fruition. And I'm excited to see the rest of the dairy industry try to take it on. And, And even if they don't take it on to certify, just ask questions. I think that's how we get better is the more people who say, have you thought about X? How are you guys addressing Y? That's really big for us. And I know it's a hard industry. We've got razor thin margins all the way down the supply chain. We've got big issues that we need to address and all of that is hard. So the baby steps that we can take with brands and retailers and manufacturers really again raises the tide and raises all ships as an industry makes us all better. So I'm really excited to see where we go and and what this looks like in a year and in 5 years and in 10 years looking back.
0: So it's not like it's set in stone, you'll be kind of tweaking it as you go.
3: We still revise our standards on a 3-year rolling basis. We are committed to continuous improvement. We know we are not an end game. I think that's something that isn't spoken enough quite a bit, but internally within Fair Trade, we say it a lot. Fair Trade's not the end goal, it's not a finish line. It's merely a mechanism to improvement, but it's also a mechanism to allow supply chains to identify what's not working and what's going wrong. I think we see this a lot in child labor cases in COPO. It's not about taking a kid out of a field when you find them there. It's about identifying why is that kid not in school or what's wrong with the amount of money that a family's making that they need another extra pair of hands in the field. That's a big challenge to communicate. We're not looking for you to do something wrong and say, you can't have the certification. We're more committed to you taking it on and opening up a little bit for someone to come in and see what you're doing and, say i know this is the way it's always been done but can we make small changes to maybe make this better in five years from now that's what's exciting about dairy
0: and now we have our weekly update on the global dairy markets with liam fenton at stone
4: x dairy futures this week uh, were slightly firmer on the fat side and um Relatively stronger as well on the protein side, I guess a lot of the data that's been out internationally has been generally supportive of prices, which, to be honest stretches across a lot of commodity products at the moment looks like Chinese imports continue to be to to be relatively strong May June butter was trading around forty ninety five level forty one hundred level up slightly on the week. quarter three butter was a good bit stronger around forty one sixty five level up around sixty euros on the week quarter four then was up around 35 euros on the week to the 4170 level quarter one just about broke through the 4000 level on the week up maybe around a tenner on the week may june gimbal powder was around the 2580 level which is around the same level maybe slightly lower than last week quarter three was trading around 2620 which is up around 20 euros on the week quarter four was also up around 20 euros on the week to 2620 2625 level and uh, quarter one skim then was around the 25 70 80 level so sort of flat on the week uh, it was quiet further up the curve we still remaining around the thousand level
0: okay thanks a lot liam we will talk to you again next week Stone X, formerly INCLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another podcast. Next week is already taking shape, although I'm not sure what kind of shape that is, as long as it's not pear-shaped. It looks like I'll be able to go and watch some live sport again soon, just as the season is over. But in some countries, the light also seems to be at the end of the tunnel. Now, we've just got to make sure that that light is in every country, because world travel isn't really that secure until every country has this under control. So hopefully all is well wherever in the world you are, and I hope you all have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.